Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, good morning, church. I'm uh, glad that you have joined us to worship. We're a small little group here uh, today. Our worship team is gathered here uh, celebrating and giving thanks to, uh, to God for being so very good to us. I, uh, I know that I'm messing with our camera people a little bit when I move around, but um, isn't it good to just be messed with some from time to time, you know, just, just to kind of mess with one another a little bit, to, to uh, just be challenged a little bit, and make sure that everybody's properly awake and, uh, and ready. We have been in a series for the last uh, two weeks, this is our, our third week, and um, quite possibly... Quite possibly, um, the last uh, message in this series. I'm not. I'm not completely certain about that. Uh, we're just done some stirring, but um, hopefully, I'll know more uh, later in the week um, to see what the Lord has. Maybe it's just going to be for for a later time. Um, but I want to remind us. I want to go back to our kind of anchor verse uh, for this series in Micah chapter six, verse eight, and it says this. It says, "What does the Lord require of you?" And me, but to do justice and love mercy or or kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Now, the the Hebrew words, we haven't done uh, much digging into the the Hebrew words that those phrases are translated from, but they they are rich. They're very, very rich words. The first word is mishpat, and we we translate it to, to do justice or to act justly and much not not all please hear me say this not all but a great deal of what you're hearing people cry out for in our culture is actually rooted in God's dream God's God's idea this word in Hebrews means to deal rightly with with one another the way that God has dealt rightly with us the, the righteous way that God deals with us is how we're to deal righteously with one another. And, and not just those in the church, but everyone. Everyone that's been created in the image of God, which is everyone you meet. The next Hebrew word is really filled with rich meaning. It's one of my favorite of all uh, Hebrew words in, in the scripture. It gets to the heart of who God is. It's, it's the reason why we are to love mercy. And it's because that's who Jesus is. He, he is and what he's done for us. And it's this Old Testament word, kased, And it is, uh, many of you would be more familiar with the New Testament word, agape. It describes the kind of love God has. Well, kased is this Old Testament expression of God's love, that he is ever faithful and long-suffering. So this word often gets translated with phrases like loving kindness or steadfast love or compassion or here in Micah 6.8 as mercy. So when you think about Jesus um, out of the Hebrew language, Jesus is the perfect picture of kasad, kind of love. I think it's true that any time you come in the New Testament to the word uh, where a love is translated from agape, that you could probably just insert the word, uh, the Hebrew word kased. It, in, in John uh, chapter 13, this isn't going to come up on the screen, but in John 13, Jesus said this. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you agape one another. You could also say, if you have uh, agape or if you have kasad for one another. What Jesus is saying is that there is, is no room in the kingdom of God for us to be indifferent to the pain of our brothers and sisters, whether it's here at home or around the world. See, to, to follow Jesus is to love mercy toward others. Now, there are some that have 
kind of said, you know, Joe, aren't you just ready for all this to be done? Aren't you just ready, you know, for this to be over? And I would say this, if you have been kind of waiting in the cesspool that is social media, you probably are done with this. And, and I'll just tell you, there are days when I, I, I have felt like I, I'm just, I'm exhausted, I, I, I'm done. And so when somebody asks, Joe, are you, aren't you tired of this discussion? Aren't, aren't you ready for, for something else? Aren't you ready to move on? I, I would have to say, well, the answer is absolutely yes. I want to see this come to an end. But not that if, if it requires us going back to normal. Not if it requires us going back to the way things were. No. I want to see this come to an end because we have made such unbelievable progress as God's people, first of all, and then as a nation, that things change dramatically because God speaks to his people and, and what God has said and asked us to do, we do. I don't want this to end until, you know, things like the murders of George Floyd or uh, Ahmaud Aubrey or Walter Scott stop happening. Then I'll be ready for this to end. See, that's what it means to love mercy. See, mercy endures. Love, that kind of love endures. Now, this morning, we're looking specifically at the, the last uh, phrase in Micah 6.8 that God's word tells us we are to do. We're to do justice. We're to love mercy. And then we're to walk humbly with our God. Now, the Hebrew words here for walk humbly are the words halak sana. We are to walk humbly with, with our God. And this, this imagery, this word picture of halak sana is found throughout the whole of God's word. Through Moses, God commanded his Old Testament covenant people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. says this, so keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways. You're walking with him in his ways. Through the apostle Paul, God commands the New Testament covenant people, those of us, the church, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. We're to walk in those that, that, that Jesus has provided for us, that he has prepared for us ahead of time. Those good works, we're to, we're to walk in those with God. We can study the lives of, of those who the Bible tells us walked with God. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 23 and following, it tells us that Enoch, he lived a total of 365 years, and Enoch walked with God. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, the Bible tells us that Noah, that he was a righteous man, that he was blameless in his generation, and that Noah... Walked with God. We could study Noah's life and see a life lived to, that walks with God. We see how David, King David, worshipped God as he walked humbly with him. In Psalm 56, David cries out, he says, For you rescued me from death. You have kept my feet from slipping. So now I can walk in your presence, O oh God. In your life-giving light. David, David worshipped God as he walked with him. That's, that's a normal response to anybody who's going to walk humbly with God. In Psalms 116, uh, verse 7, David again cries out, Let my soul be at rest, for the Lord has been good to me. He has saved me from death. He has, uh, my, my eyes... Uh, you know, my tears, my feet from stumbling. And so I walk in the Lord's presence as I live here on earth. See, it is, it is possible that in this broken, messed up, fear-filled, pandemic world, it's possible to walk humbly with God. And it's not just an Old Testament idea 
the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, 6, he says, The one who says he resides in God ought to himself walk just as Jesus walked. Jesus walked with God. Let me jump back to another Old Testament passage real quick just to give you an idea of what, of what walking is. In Amos 3, verse 3, we're told that two people will walk together, or they won't walk together unless they've agreed to do so. You will never be able to walk together unless you are in agreement with somebody. See, when you, when you walk with someone, obviously you have to be going in the, in the same direction. You know, if you're going in a different direction, you can't, you can't listen to them. You can't, you can't enjoy them. You can't, you can't share things with them. You won't, you won't be able to understand their perspective, where they're coming from. See, when you walk with the Lord, your will is going to align with his will. Since, since you're walking side by side with him, your focus will be on him. When you're constantly walking with somebody, you're going to understand them better than you did. You're going to, to know their heart. When you're walking with God, one of the things that you're going to want to lay down is sin. If you want to walk somewhere with a friend. Let's say you want to take a, a trip somewhere with a friend. And, and let's say that you have a, a pet python that you take everywhere with you. And this new friend that you have that you want to take this journey with hates snakes. Dead snakes, living snakes, rubber snakes, just, just hate snakes. If you really want to walk, take a journey with this friend, you're going to make other arrangements for that python. And the truth is when you walk humbly with God... You're going to have to make other arrangements for sin. You're going to have to reject sin in order to, to walk with God. And, and see, walking humbly with God is, is not just about you know, getting in your prayer closet. Now, obviously, prayer is involved. But, but walking humbly with God is, is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle connected to, to Jesus. You can only obtain it through a relationship of walking with Jesus Christ. And it's a lifetime journey. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus was speaking to people, and he said this. He said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, he says, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. If you walk with him, if you walk humbly with Jesus, it's a, it's a lifetime journey. It's a lifetime journey of allowing God Allowing Jesus and his word to sit in, in judgment of our hearts. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, the apostle writes these words. If we say we have fellowship with him, with, with Jesus, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with with one another. It's almost like he, he's saying earlier that if we're walking in darkness, if we say we have fellowship with him, but we don't have fellowship with our brothers, if we're rejecting them for some reason, we're, we're, we're caught up in a lie. He's saying, but if, if we walk in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, and we can know this, one of the ways that we can know that is that if we're walking in fellowship with one another, we can know that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It gives us an assurance of our salvation when we find ourselves walking in oneness and fellowship and unity with our brothers and sisters. See, one of the undeniable realities of the life of a Christ follower is that we will live in fellowship. We will live in koinonia, in deep relationship with other believers. And, and if that's true, then there, there's a question that all of us still have to ask, I believe. Why is it that 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings continues to remain one of the most segregated hours in our nation? If we, if we say we have fellowship with him, shouldn't our fellowship with one another Look if, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will, Jesus said, we will have fellowship with one another. 
Now, I, I want to I just take a moment and say, say thank you to those of you who started uh, week one of this series and have remained. I, I know that there have been moments maybe you've been challenged to think differently about something that you you held to for a while. Maybe there have been moments when you've been uncomfortable that your pastor's going to say something really dumb, which is possible, as we already know. Many of you uh, along this journey have let me know that you have already allowed God to bring a strong challenge in your heart on, on some of those areas in your life where, where prejudgment exists. You're, you, you have some prejudgments about, about things. You have, it's prejudice. And you've said God's challenging you and you're letting him work. And I'm going to continue to pray that he does that work in all of us. One, one, of, the, one of the biggest issues that God has been challenging my own heart with on, on this journey in recent weeks is that though we have been called to have fellowship, that doesn't mean we have to always agree with everyone we're having fellowship with 100% of the time. There's this mindset out there that seems to be pushing people to, to, to be divided. That the only way that you can have relationship with someone is if you and, and they agree 100% of the time on, on every topic. Friends, that's a lie. Pastor Kurt used to teach us all the time. One of the things he, he ingrained in my heart is we don't have to be twins to be brothers. We don't have to 100%. So social media and mainstream media has been pushing this, this agenda, this, this lie, this idea that if we are to ever live together in peace, we're going to have to all believe exactly like one another 100% of the time. Friends, that, that is a lie. Now, we've got to honor one another. And the Bible tells us we've got to, we've got to listen to one another in order to be able to do that. Jesus' half-brother James, some of you will recall this, that he wrote these words, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And man, I don't know about you, but I need work on that. See, we, we can agree in fellowship that it's okay to disagree sometimes, but to do it in, in love. Walking humbly with God means we will have that kind of humble spirit towards each other. But here's what we have to do. If we're going to have fellowship together, there is one thing that we've got to agree on. We have to agree with Jesus 100% of the time. Not, not with each other's opinions. We have to agree with Jesus 100% of the time. We have to agree on the clear teachings of Jesus as, as, as proclaimed in his word. The word of God. We must let this book sit in judgment over our prejudgments, over, over our, our prejudices. This is not going to come up on the screen. You may want to write this down. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus said these words. Matthew 12, verse 30. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Now, that's, that's Jesus' standard. It's not our politicized version of what Jesus said. But we, we try to co-opt that thinking into our own so that if somebody doesn't agree 100% with me 100% of the time, then I write them off and just say, well, they're just working against me. See, you, you know what the problem with that is? You're not Jesus. You're, you're not Je I'm not Jesus. We have to. We have to submit to Jesus, his thoughts on everything 100% of the time, but not always with one another. We don't have to always agree on everything, but we certainly have to agree on the truths of Jesus found in his word. Now, here's why this issue is so important. It's because it's so very, very easy for our hearts and minds our hearts and minds that have been influenced by our own personal experiences, our hearts and minds that have been influenced by our own families of origin. It's so easy for our hearts and minds, for our souls to be corrupted. It's, it's very likely for all of us that there have been places in our lives when we have signed contracts with the enemy of our souls because we've adopted thoughts or concepts or principles or, or worldviews that are ungodly. 
And what we've got to do is be willing to, to break those contracts with the enemy. And when Jesus' word shines light on, a, on an ungodly contract that we've made in our minds, we've got to break that. See, the only contracts with, with ideas and concepts and principles and worldviews that we should hold to are, are those that have already been co-signed by Jesus. And if you're wondering what are those, they're in here. They're in God's word. Jesus has co-signed all of this. He's put his name on it. Those are principles we can live by, we can find in his word. And so walking humbly with God will, will require a continuous cycle of breaking contracts with the world and the flesh and the devil and, and, and building our lives on contracts that have already been co-signed by Jesus. In other words, friends, uh, and, and this, is, uh, this is kind of the big idea today, walking humbly with God requires personal transformation. It will require my transformation and I want to take the time that we have remaining to look at a contract that Jesus has already signed. He's already signed off on this one, and we need to sign our lives off on this one. And it's found in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles and you would open them to Luke chapter 10, there are some kingdom truths that Jesus teaches us here that we, we must agree with 100% of the time as his followers if we're going to walk humbly with God. So we're going to read, uh, starting in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, and we're going to eventually get through verse 37, but I'm going to stop right now at verse 32. Verse 25, Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, talking about that he was going to test Jesus. And he said this, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul, with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he being Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. He got the right answer. He filled the blank in the right way. Kyler, Jesus' professors would have been pleased. The, the lawyer's professors would have been pleased with him. He you know, got a good grade there. But he didn't stop there. The lawyer didn't. He says this in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and I think he did it quite smugly. I think he said, well, then, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied. And Jesus tells a story here. He didn't fill the blank in for him. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And what that means is he appeared, he appeared dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. I want to stop there for just a minute, and I want us to just walk away with a point here that I believe we're going to see just unfold out of this, and it's simply this. We will never walk humbly with God if we avoid suffering. If, if we become people that just try to avoid the pain that others are enduring, we'll never walk humbly with God trying to live a life of avoidance, the difficult things of this life. You and I have got to reject contracts that we've made with the enemy that have led our hearts to avoid the pain in this world, especially the pain of our brothers and sisters that are enduring here in our own community, in your neighborhoods, in the schools where your kids go, where you live, work, and play, where you go to work, in our nation and around the world. We cannot reject, we can't avoid it. Parents, some of you might get this as an illustration. I'm not going to confess 
to this yet. I might by the time I get to the end of the illustration. But maybe, maybe some of you can, can remember a time when your children are first born. And maybe, maybe both of you are, are working. And that baby interrupts your sleep with a cry. And they're, they just, they're crying. And it, it, maybe it's a diaper change. Maybe it's feeding time. And you're, you're awake, but you hear your spouse kind of rustle a little bit. And so you don't move. You try to remain just completely still, praying that they'll, they'll get up. And you, you rationalize things. You think, well, haven't I done enough? Didn't I do the last one? What, what, it, it, they're, so you just, you just stay there. You avoid taking care of the problem. And I think if most of us were honest, we live our lives like that far too often. We, we live our lives thinking it's just easier to be silent when somebody at work tells a racially motivated joke. We just, we, we may not laugh, we may even turn and walk away, but we don't, we don't, we don't inject, we don't, we don't take that stuff on. We don't enter into other people's pain because it might require us to feel pain. When Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking on this passage from Luke chapter 10, he said that the, the question that probably most often gets asked is, what will happen to this man if I do nothing? And it's an important question that we have to ask. But Dr. King went on and he said there is at least an equally important question that we all must ask when we come to Jesus' teaching here. And it's this. What will happen to me if I do nothing? What will happen to my life and my soul? How will, how will I be conformed to this world? How will my soul be deformed? What, what will happen to me? How will this contract that I am signing with the evil one through this choice that I'm making? Let, let me say this just a little differently. Every single one of us runs the risk of becoming the priest or the Levite in the story that Jesus is telling to make a point. But if we do so, we find ourselves in direct violation to the greatest command that Jesus gave, that this lawyer spoke. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And see, in in, in the story, as Jesus is honing in on who your neighbor is, Jesus is showing us that in God's kingdom, there is no room for indifference on how we are to love our neighbors. There's no room to avoid. If you think there is, then I would, I would challenge you later today, go over to Matthew chapter 25. It's not going to come up on your screen, but if you go over to Matthew chapter 25 and you start reading around verse 31 through the end of the chapter, it's, it's going to be about judgment, the day of judgment. And Jesus points out that a heart that always avoids and doesn't engage is not a kingdom heart. It's a life that has still been signed away to the enemy of our souls, and the outcome is terrifying. Friends, we can't continue to step over the man, the woman, our brother, or sister that's lying in the road. Let me, let me give you just a little bit of um, historic context about Jews and Samaritans. Historically, we know from folks who have studied this that a lot of Jewish priests lived in the Jericho region. Now, Jericho was about a 17-mile walk from, literally from kind of 
central Jericho to the temple. And the temple was in Jerusalem. It's where priests and Levites would go to serve. That was kind of like part of their job. Now, they didn't go to work every day. They would go for several days and then be off a couple weeks and then go back. They would serve kind of around the clock. Now, in the midst of, of Jesus telling this story, his listeners... Even the Jewish lawyer who, you know, he's speaking to and is trying to challenge Jesus, they would, they would know this. They would know contextually this, this reality, and they would visualize this Levite and, and this priest having served probably for the last few weeks in Jerusalem. They're now making their way back home from, from their temple service. But before they began their temple service, they would have gone through um, kind of a ceremonial cleansing, purification process. Kind of like we would think of about quarantining ourselves for 14 days before we go back out in public if we've been exposed. They, they would go through this process of purification before they could even serve in the temple. And so for them to approach this man who's laid out in the road, who... The Bible says is he's half dead. It's like the guy's dead. He appears dead. Then based on Levitical law, they would become unclean. And that has implications. See, if they become unclean, it means they've got to turn around and go back to Jerusalem and go through that whole process again. And until that happens, they would be unable to receive offerings from other Jews for their service. That was one of the ways that priests and Levites were paid for the work they did in uh, you know, taking care of the temple was they were paid by their fellow Jews. They would have been so ceremonially unclean if they had touched that body that they would not have been able to work. They wouldn't have been able to provide for their families. So what we have are these two guys that have reasons not to respond. It's going to cost them time. It's a valued commodity in our culture. It's going to cost them resources. It's another reason they, they didn't respond. And they just leave that man lying there. Well, what about us? Who, who do we leave that God puts in our path? Who do we leave just, just lying there? And what are our reasons? Why do we do this? Is it, is it inconvenient? Will it cost us some time to stop, to care, to look into their eyes, to, to have to have empathy? Or, or do, we, do we rationalize? Do we think, you know, if, if you had only been smarter, if you had left earlier in the day before the robbers were out, you wouldn't end up in this mess. You set yourself up for that. If, if you had worked a little harder, just gotten up a little bit earlier, we rationalize. Or maybe what we do is we think, you know what, I've, I've, I've already done a great deal. You know, I, I serve God. I, I do for others. I've already given God all that time when, when I was here you know, serving, when I was serving my neighbors, when I was working at the, uh, over at Midland Park, when, when, when I was coming to lead worship, whatever it was, I probably don't really need to do more. But friends, please hear this. Avoidance is a temptation that will almost always cause us, if we yield to it, to reject Humility. It will almost always cause us to reject humility. But what we must reject is thinking that we, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. That's why Paul writes to believers in Galatia. He's instructing them in kingdom living. And in Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes these words. He says, stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens and so complete, fulfill, if you would, the law of Christ. If you think you are too good for that, you are badly deceived. See, in God's kingdom, there's no room for indifference towards our neighbors, how we express love. Let's pick up where, where Jesus left off his teaching. Back up in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, says this, but a Samaritan... 
as he journeyed. Remember, we've got the Levite and the priest. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed and came to where he was, talking about this man lying there, when he saw him, he had compassion. We talked about mercy, God's compassion last week. He went to him, bound up his wounds. He poured uh, on oil and, and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, one of the things that I see from this is, is this reality. I'll never walk humbly with God until the compassion of God is being reproduced in me. I will never walk humbly with God until I, I'm, I'm allowing for the reproduction of God's compassion through my life. Let me give you just a little bit more historic background um, from this narrative that, that Jesus is giving us. See, this would have been in the back of the minds of, of the Jews that were listening that day because there existed this incredible racial divide between Jews and Samaritans, even though they were of the very same bloodline, even though both of them kept the Old Testament covenant and law of Moses. See, they, they both practice Jewish customs and matters of faith. But the Samaritans also had Assyrian bloodline mixed in with their bloodline. So the Jews of that day thought them half-breeds. See, there was this time in Jewish history, it happened a couple of times, but Jew, the Jews would be conquered by foreign invaders. Often they would be left in the land, but when the Assyrians came in, the Assyrians took some of the Jews back with them, mostly from the northern tribes, took them back with them. They re, kind of replanted them to kind of control them. And one of those Assyrians, they, they, they took many Jews captive. They marched them to, to their capital. Well, there came a day... When they were released. But while there they intermarried. They intermarried with their captors. They intermarried with Assyrians. And now eventually when they got released and came back to their homeland. What was going on back home was because the Assyrians had kind of destroyed the temple. They, they wanted to come back and help rebuild. The temple had begun to be rebuilt. And the southern tribes. Those kind of living in Jerusalem and around that, that region. They would not let the returning northern tribes be a part of that rebuilding. They said they were unclean, that they couldn't touch, that the temple would be unclean if their hands touched it. And it created this incredible division between families, what had been Jewish families. And it eventually creates such a, a horrible rift that the northern tribes end up building their own temple to worship God there. Uh, using the, basically the same Old Testament covenant and laws that the Jews used in Jerusalem, they're now using up in Samaria. That's why when Jesus comes on the scene and we get to John chapter 4 and we see Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, she tries to debate with Jesus on where's the best place to worship God because there were two temples in, in, that, in that season. This is also the context into which Jesus is speaking here in Luke 10. And Jesus knew that one of the common prayers of this day, this prayer is written down. Historians have found that one of the common prayers of the Jews of the southern tribes was simply this. God forgive me, but not Samaritans. God forgive me, but God don't forgive them. Can you imagine praying that prayer? So in Jesus' story... This Samaritan is not, it's not a Gentile. He's of the same bloodline, but racially hated by the Jews. He's actually bound by the same ceremonial laws of purification as the Levite and priest. His actions would have made him unclean as well. He'd have had to, when he got back to his home, he'd have had, before he could go home, he'd have had to go through a purification process before he could go to church again and go home again. He had to do the same things the priest and the Levite had to do. But he still allowed the compassion of God to be reproduced in his life. He was proactively compassionate towards someone that everybody else rejected. He lived out what he knew God had, had done for him in order for him to be made right with God. God had shown him compassion. And now that compassion of God 
is being reproduced through his own life. And he is pouring it out on this most likely Jewish man who probably would have not treated him this way. See, this is what the compassion of God does. Now, here's a question I have for for all of us. How is the compassion Jesus has shown you, how is it currently being reproduced through your life? The story that Jesus tells isn't so much about this unlikely man doing good. I don't think. I think it's more about the people of God doing nothing. I I think it's an indictment against God's people choosing to look the other way. So what as followers of Jesus, what are you? Where are you looking away when it comes to racism, when it comes to injustice in our world? Now, remember, racism is a manifestation of a worldview, a deeply held belief that one grew up with, that one, one believes they're superior to another by birth. Friends, if, if we are to ever experience racial reconciliation, if our land is ever going to be re Rehealed, if you would, healed by God, then reconciliation has got to take place. And all reconciliation is modeled after the reconciliation we have with God. Reconciliation is built on repentance. We know, as Christ followers, that the only way we were reconciled to God was we repented of our sins and we put our trust that we could be saved totally in Jesus. We repented of the lie that we could save ourselves, that somehow we could balance the scales of justice. And we realized, we repented of that that lie because we came to understand how great our sin was. See, reconciliation is contingent on repentance. Now, we, we know that in the New Testament, the word translated repentance comes from the word metanoia. And it, metanoia really means, to, it deals with thinking, you're, you're knowing. And what it means is to, to, to change your mind. We've talked about this for years. It literally means to have a, a change of mind. So a, a call to repentance before God means that something was catalyzed in your thinking that there was a wrong that needed to be addressed. There was a wrong that had been done, and it needs to be addressed. That's the first step towards repentance. And truthfully, human reconciliation is also always predicated upon repentance, which means it always begins with addressing a wrong that's been done. So if there's going to be racial reconciliation, there has to be an addressing of what's gone wrong. And that requires each of us to first see. See what's gone wrong. And and then choose to change the way I think about some of those things. I I need to repent. I need to I need to unsign a contract that I've made with maybe a lie or uh, or the evil one or my own flesh. And I need to sign a contract that's been co-signed by Jesus. And that's going to require more learning on our part. Now, one of my prayers in this series has been that God would use this as a baby step, kind of baby step number one, that launches us as God's people to reject racism and prejudice and bias that has a, a foothold anywhere in our hearts or our minds. But I know this. That's not going to happen in just three weeks. I think maybe one little step can, but all of that's not going to be dealt with in, one, in, in, in just three weeks. It's going to require more. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do, to open your heart and mind to study some more. Maybe get into a small group or maybe a small group that you're already in doing a study that walks through, that you get into some discussions with people. And I would encourage you especially to get into some discussions with people whose skin tone is different than yours. There are some great studies out there. One study that the North American Mission Board uh, kind of launched, it was launched about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, it's called Undivided. It's a free resource. You can go online, you can download the group guide, you can download each of the videos, I think it's five or six sessions. It's totally free. 
And your small group, you, you could start a group to study that. I'm going to post that on, on Realm this week. It'll probably make it on our Facebook page as well. There's another great study. For, for those of you that are River Bluffians, um, you have access to what's something called Right Now Media. That's a, this huge library of videos. It's kind of like Netflix for Christians, if you would, um, to do great study. And one of the great studies that's on there is one by Tony Evans entitled Oneness Embraced. I would highly commend that. There's another study that, that uh, I led back in, in February and March. Uh, it's called The Church and the Racial Divide. There's some great studies out there that will allow us to talk with one another and ask the difficult questions and learn together. But we've got to start by first seeing what's wrong so we can repent for recon- reconciliation to happen. See, this is where the compassion of God can begin to be reproduced in, in our lives. And we can't walk humbly with God until that happens. And then we're able to do what Jesus shows us next. Look at uh, verses 35 through 37. It says this. And the next day, he's talking about the, the Samaritan. He took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more. Please see that phrase. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus asked the question to this lawyer, and I think everybody there. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the attorney answered, and he said this, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And what Jesus is showing us here, I believe, is this. That we will never walk humbly with the Lord without personal sacrifice. You and I will never walk humbly with our God without personal sacrifice. See, friends, the way we treat people who you don't need something from will always reveal who we really are. It will always reveal our own hearts. That, That phrase in verse 35, whatever more. Whatever more it takes, I'll spend. I'll, I'll repay. Whatever more is necessary, I'll sacrifice. See, the Samaritan had already given so much of his time. He had already poured out so many resources. He had bandaged his wounds. He would given up his valuables and money. He, he had sacrificed his own personal spiritual cleanliness, if you would. But he responds with whatever more. Friends, that's what Jesus did. Je- Jesus, God in the flesh, having already done so much for humanity, for his people, Jesus came saying, I'll pay. Whatever more. I will sacrifice personally. I'll leave the glory of heaven. I will sacrifice being in the place where I am adored, where I'm served by the angelic host. In order to come here and be rejected and spit upon and crucified. I'll do whatever, whatever more. That's what Jesus said. I'll, I'll personally sacrifice what has been up until my crucifixion. A timeless, unbroken fellowship with my father. I will sacrifice whatever more. Whatever, whatever else it takes. to to pay for their sin. Jesus said, I will pay that for you. He'll pay it for me, whatever more. One of my great hopes is that all of us, every one of us who calls River Bluff my church, that we would all take one step in humility Maybe that step needs to be from being uninformed to informed by our brothers and sisters who don't look exactly like us, who may be, be suffering in pain. That we'd take a, maybe another step of humility from just being aware to being intentional about doing something. You know, anyone can see people laying in the road and just step over them or step around them. But friends... Hearts that have been transformed by the power of the gospel can no longer live like that. Can't, you, you can't live that way. We've got we've to help one another in this. 
We've, we've, got to, we've got to come around each other and, and challenge one another and champion one another. Because the truth is, every one of us have blind spots here. Every one of us. Jesus' half-brother, James, reminds us in, in James 5. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. He didn't say, you know, deliberately runs from. He didn't say rejects. He says just kind of wanders. And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Friends, there are a multitude of sins that we've been talking about and looking at over the past several weeks. Some of it is still rooted in our culture. Some of it is still rooted in our government. Some of it is still rooted in our justice system. Yes, it it is. But here's where it's mostly rooted. It's mostly rooted in our hearts. It's mostly rooted in you and in me. So we must repent. Which means we got to make room. For God to do his work. I'm going to ask the worship team if you'll begin making your way up here. See, God wants to do a work in our hearts, but we have to make make room for him. God wants to do a great healing work in our land, but we've we've got to make room for him. God has promised in his word, and he's told us how to partner with him to see his kingdom come. 2 Chronicles 7.14, God's word says this, if my people who are called by my name, will do what? Humble themselves. Walk humbly with me. If they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, again, walk humbly with me, and turn from their wicked ways, repent, then God says, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. But we have got to make room for God to do that. And we, that starts with repentance, friends. And so, instead of stopping to pray right now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to worship God along as our, our worship team leads in this song. And I want you to let God call your heart to repentance in whatever way you need to. What do you need to make room for? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to dismiss? What contracts that you've made with the world, the flesh, or the devil do you need to unsign to sign on with God? Right now, will you take time prayerfully to make room? Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.